Greetings to all of you, and I hope you all had a wonderful feast. Uh, my wife and I certainly did. We got to travel to three different feast sites. We went to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, up in the Ozark Mountains, perhaps the prettiest place in the Ozark Mountains. My mother used to have my father drive us down there in the autumn to see the turning of the leaves. It is very pretty. It's about 3,000 feet, which is high for that area. And uh, the turning of the leaves makes it very, very pretty. A couple of great big mountain views as you get up to the high points. A lot of interesting shops. Eureka Springs has become kind of an artsy place. So it's not just an Arkansas hillbilly place at all. They have a lot of very interesting art galleries and shops and restaurants. And uh, with Mr. and Mrs. Davy Crockett, the famous Davy Crockett, <laughs> while we had dinner Saturday night with Mrs. Hegbold also, uh, at the beginning of the feast, look on this ridge looking out over the lake. And it was just a beautiful location at the Horizon Restaurant and a very, very nice uh, setting. So they do have a lot of interesting places there. We had about, uh, as I remember, 380 uh, very inspired brethren there, and uh, everything went very well, and uh, everything seemed to be uh, just lovely for the feast. Then we went on to Prescott, Arizona, and things went well there, and I think there's just 280 there, as I remember, and it uh, went very well there. And Prescott is a mile-high city, just like Denver. It's about, uh, I guess, about 90 minutes north. Uh, Phoenix, so it's a lot cooler up there. Very pretty, wonderful location for the feast. And everything went well there as well. Uh, then we went on to uh, Kauai. And, you know, it's way off. It's it's the furthest most tourist island in the Hawaiian chain, the, uh, the one that's closest to Japan. And it's a long, long trip from here to Kauai. Someone had to do it, and I was willing to go there. <coughs> It's a six-hour time change from here, so coming back, why, is my voice coming in loud enough? Okay, I thought my wife was concerned I was mumbling. Turn me up if I'm mumbling, see, okay. Anyway, uh, we really enjoyed it, although we got back here, my wife and I have been up and wandering around the last few nights, and uh, it's hard to sleep, although last night I did a little better, and uh, very grateful for that. But it is a, it's, it's only five hours from here to London, but it's six hours to Kauai. And it is absolutely gorgeous, just absolutely gorgeous. If any of you get a chance to go there next year, I hope you will. It will be a memorable experience. The feast was in a very nice hall, and my wife and I took time on Sunday after the feast to drive over to the Grand Canyon of the Pacific, Waimea Canyon, I think they call it, and that was just gorgeous. And it is a great big Grand Canyon, not as big as the one in Arizona, but very big and absolutely beautiful, and then some lookout points beside and then on Monday, we drove over the other direction to uh, uh, Hanalei Bay. A lot of you have heard of Hanalei Bay. And just above Hanalei Bay is the location where they filmed, uh, you know, some of the South Pacific, the movie South Pacific. And they had, what's his name? I can't remember singing uh, there uh, uh, overlooking Hanalei Bay. And they had an old Princeville hotel that I saw there, saw there about 30 years ago. They've torn that down. And they have a new one that's bigger and more beautiful, just absolutely gorgeous. And they have a veranda and the, for the restaurant, a beautiful restaurant. And the veranda is looking right down on Hanalei Bay. So Cheryl and I had lunch there Monday. And I felt sorry for all of you. <coughs> I really did. <laughs> we, we, were, we were looking down on one of the most beautiful sights in the world and having lunch there. So it was a very nice occasion. Many of the brethren there, virtually everyone I heard, really raved about the location and the beauty of Kauai. 
So I hope a number of you can go in years to come. We hope we can keep the feast going there. And it was a very, very nice uh, occasion, about 180. I think it was 380, 280, 180. I'm approximating. I think one of them was 176 or something, but that's about it. So we didn't have huge crowds. The biggest crowd, as I've heard, was about 929, let's say 930 in Panama City. And then you had about 850 in Myrtle Beach. So those were the two biggest feast sites in that order uh, in the world. And I heard you had wonderful feasts there. And, of course, Mr. Lyons, a very fine sermonette, uh, pointed that out. Everything went very well at Panama City. And I heard from Mr. Davis and others that everything went very well uh, in Myrtle Beach. So we've had some wonderful feasts. We're very grateful for that. Well, brethren, I do want to uh, thank God and thank all of you. We don't have all of our staff here. As you know, Mr. and Mrs. Ames both have a very uh, bad cold, and they're not here today. Uh, right after the feast, sometimes. I guess Mrs. Ames is here, as a matter of fact. I don't see him. Yes, she's here. But anyway, she seemed to have a cold yesterday. She must be well enough. Beware of her. She may still have a cold. <laughs> anyway, she says she's okay. But... Uh, uh, the editorial staff did a fine job, Mr. Ames, Mr. Bomer, and uh, Donna Prejean, and others who may have worked on it. Some of you are getting it. My wife and I got it just yesterday in the mail, and it is a beautiful new Tomorrow's World magazine, and I'm very grateful for it. It's one of the prettiest covers we've had, and it is a very powerful magazine. I hope all of you will read it, really, brethren. I, I read part of it the other day, and uh, some again last night. And was very inspired by it. It's one of the strongest articles or, you know, editorials and articles kind of going together that I wrote about Christianity, just the way it flowed. And then I read Mr. Uh, or Dr. Douglas Winnell's uh, article here on page 24, The Lady of Nations. Actually, I'd read it before and looked it over, but I read it again. And it is powerful. It is very, very well done showing how the Catholic Church has introduced all these concepts about the Virgin and how it came right out of ancient Egypt and Babylon. And Dr. O'Neill, of course, is a real researcher, as is Mr. John O'Gwen, and brings in a lot of very, very interesting points. So a very powerful article and many other fine articles through the magazine. So it's one of the best magazines we've had. I think our circulation is just under 200,000 now. And I wish it were at least ten times that much. We need two million. <laughs> and I really hope you'll pray about that. Rather than the 200,000, we're not quite to 200,000, I know that, but let's say in round numbers, uh, we really need to get it up to at least two or three million circulation. At the, at the peak, worldwide, eight, had 8.3 million copies that they were printing at least. Some that went to newsstands. It wasn't always through subscription. But they had 8.3 million if we could get up to two or three million, uh, that would be good. The world is a lot bigger now, a lot more people, about 6.2 or 3 billion people on earth today. And uh, even three or four million people would not be reaching very many. But if you're reaching them mainly in the Western world, the civilized world, the first world, let's say, it does have an impact. Let's pray about that. I'd appreciate your prayers and you brethren around the world. Please pray that God will help us not only get on more stations, we are having a bigger impact, I think, on television than any other group on the earth, but we need to get our circulation up as well. And I pray that we can do that and greatly increase the power of this magazine. As I told Mr. Ames, it's really sorry to see these powerful articles that he writes and Mr. Gwen writes and Dr. Vanale and others and have it go out to just a few hundred thousand and realizing there's six, whatever it is, 6.2 billion people out there and we need to reach a lot more of them. 
we may rerun some of these articles in years to come, but, uh, you know, it, we need to get that circulation way, way up. But I'm very pleased with it and the work that was done, and thank you for it. And again, I would like to add to what Mr. Davis said in the announcement. Uh, please pray especially for Mrs. Val Burgett. Her condition is much worse than my wife's was, and we made an issue of that. She's another minister's wife, and uh, she is a very dear lady, just about the age of my wife, I think. She might be slightly younger. I'm not trying to get her too old or anything, or either one of them. I've got to be careful what I say. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, please pray for her. As you know, she's in very critical condition, frankly, obviously, unless God heals her supernaturally. And God can do anything. He's not limited at all. And certainly we all need to pray that as we draw closer to the end, that God will grant us the gifts of His Spirit. I feel He will. He's given us some of those things already. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. I'm talking about the gifts of the Spirit. You know, heal the sick, cast out demons, preach the gospel. Those are the big things Jesus said in that order. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. And also he said his servants would perform miracles and signs and wonders before the end of this age. And God can grant us this, but God is letting us draw closer to him as a church. He's letting us learn lessons. He's letting us go deeper. And frankly, we are learning lessons. We have grown a lot over the last several years. I know there's one man out there that claims to have all this new knowledge, much of which is just simply baloney about how he wrote uh, you know, uh, of all about the, the seven thunders of Revelation and the little book of Revelation and all this stuff, which is kind of silly, really, but when you think about it. But we have grown in depth, I think, in spiritual understanding. I'm not going to go over it, but a lot of things we have grown deep, more deeply in as a church. One of them is what I'm going to preach about today, that we've grown more deeply in understanding, even in the last few years. And uh, I want to preach today a teaching sermon. I got a chance here to preach two in a row. Normally with the schedule, I just preach one and then Mr. Ames or Mr. Bryce or Mr. Pardin or visitors preach. But as I have scheduled two in a row, I thought I'll preach a teaching sermon because I think that may be better. You've had all the wonderful inspirational sermons during the feast. It's better to get back to basics and to teach. And I want to go through something I went through a few years ago, but a lot of you didn't hear it, I know at the time, and uh, I think it's even more deep than it would be then. I'm going through First John, the first epistle of John, just before the book of Revelation. This book, as most of you know, and I've just studied a couple of commentaries about it this morning, uh, plus my own study, and I've studied this and studied this an awful lot. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. You'll notice my notes up here. I don't have any notes at all, <laughs> and I don't need any. They're in my head, and they're in my margins, because this is a teaching sermon, and this book is not so big, but what I remember, the pertinent points very well. First John was written, most scholars feel, after the Gospel of John, but both of them written in the 90s A.D. John himself, as you know, was Jesus' beloved apostle. He was the one who leaned in Jesus' breast that last night before the Passover. I'm not going to turn to all this. It'll take too much time. But most of you know that. He was Jesus' special friend. Why? When you read carefully the Gospel of John, and when you read First, Second, and Third John, you can see why. This man wrote more about love, agape, spiritual love, than any man in the New Testament. We often think that Paul did it, 1 Corinthians 13, and that's a wonderful chapter. 
But John wrote about it over and over and over and over, all the way through John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And uh, in 1 John, he mentions that 18 times, which is by far the greatest proportion of the use of the word agape, spiritual love, of any book in the Bible, proportionally. And uh, so it's a very, very powerful book when you understand it. He's talking about true love, however, not the love of this world, and it tells what it is. One of the background things you need to know is it was written near the end of the New Testament era. John was the survivor. All the other apostles, history indicates, were dead. John alone was still living. The apostasies, and there were several of them, were already underway. The beginnings of the Catholic Church was already underway. That man of sin was already being prepared, no doubt, in the person of Simon Magus and others. And also there was the Gnostic heresy, they call it, and it was not fully developed. And most of the scholars recognize that. It was not fully developed. They had different strands and themes coming together. But they had the thought that Christ was kind of a disembodied spirit and he wasn't a real person. And John says, yes, he was. He was a real human being in the flesh, and I saw him, and we saw him, Peter and James and John and all the rest. We helped him in and out of the big fishing boats. We slept with him out under the stars at night. We talked to him. We jostled shoulders, maybe even kind of kidded around and butted around like young men did in love. Jesus was not a sissy. I'm sure he did do that. You know, kind of butt someone. Sometimes I'll come up to my John. And uh, he's bigger than I am now, my youngest son. And I'll just butt up against all 200 pounds of him or 220 or whatever it is now. And uh, <laughs> and uh, he doesn't usually butt me back too hard. He might kill me. So I don't want him to do that. But anyway, uh, you know, I, I'll sometimes come up and grab uh, Jim when I haven't seen him for a long time and in church or somewhere and grab my, my son who's a carpenter like Jesus. He has his construction business. And they know who it is usually. When I grab them, they don't try to hurt me or flip me over or something. But we horse around. Do you think Jesus never did anything like that? Of course he did. He was a normal, hearty young man who was used to working with his hands. And yet he was God in the flesh. And John talks about that again more than any other one in the Gospel of John and to a degree in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So the Gnostic heresy was beginning, and John wrote to counteract that heresy, but he also wrote a course so men could really know God and fellowship with the true God and with the true Christ. Another aspect of it that you need to remember is that John, of course, understood, which I think all of us in the church know, but for the sake of any new brethren who may be here, remember 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, he talks about the rock of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, and he said in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 that all Israel drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. The rock of Israel, who was the God of Israel. And that rock was Christ. Christ was the God of Israel. And he was the one who spoke the Ten Commandments. He was the one who walked and talked among ancient Israel. He is the one who talked among, uh, talked to Adam and Eve, you know, back in the Garden of Eden. And he is the one through whom God the Father created the heavens and the earth. Ephesians 3, verse 9, all things were created by Christ. God created all things by Jesus Christ. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word here is logos, L-O-G-O-S. It means spokesman, 
spokesman, a revelatory principle. The word, the spokesman, obviously someone different, was with God. The spokesman was God. All things were made through him. He was the light God sent into the world. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And it goes on speaking of Jesus Christ. He was that spokesman. He was the one who spoke from the beginning. He was the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. The one who emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh. So John presupposes his listeners understood that, or most of them did. And you have to understand that. So throughout the book, as this commentary says, and by the way, I'm going to read a little bit. I, don't, I could bring a whole pile of them here, but I'm going to read a little bit from this commentary. The New Bible Commentary Revised. And I would like to recommend it to you. It's a Protestant commentary. This guy believes in heaven, hell, immortality of the soul. He doesn't understand Israel. You know all the buts and qualifiers about commentaries. But for a one-volume commentary, it's probably the best in the English language. The New Commentary Revised, and it's by Guthrie, Moyer, Stubbs, Wiseman, uh, several different people writing and putting it together, published by Erdmann's. The New Commentary Revised, W.M. Erdman's Publishing Company, Grand Rapids. Very fine commentary. And basically, brethren, these men who wrote these commentaries, and especially this one, far as I can tell, were God-fearing men, sincere men. Remember, Jesus said, No one can come to the Father, to the Son, unless the Spirit of the Father draw him. They, it's not their fault. They did not understand. God did not help them. But they talk about the commandments, and they don't realize they're simply overlooking the, the fourth commandment. They just don't get it. They apply it to Sunday in their own heart, I'm sure. They just don't get it. God has not called them. They overlook the holy days. We just got through observing the wonderful holy days. And frankly, we would not understand God's plan without those holy days to grasp that the death of Christ is just the beginning. Then you have to grow in grace and knowledge, which so many Protestant churches don't understand at all. And then the first fruits, the feast of first fruits, shows just a few are called. They don't understand that. They think God's trying like a poor old hound dog trying to go around and hunt down every sinner and sniff him out. Won't you give your heart to the Lord? Give your heart to the Lord tonight. It may be too late for you. Be converted. All this. They don't understand. Then you come to the Feast of Trumpets. I grew up for 19 years in a mainstream Protestant church. Never heard about the Feast of Trumpets. Never heard about Christ coming back. Nothing about it. And I was president of my Sunday school class. Both my parents graduated from a Methodist college. They don't talk about it. They don't understand it. The whole purpose of God, they do not understand. The Day of Atonement showing how this world is sick. And that Satan, the devil, has got to be banished, or there's not going to be a millennium. There's not going to be love and joy and peace on the earth until Satan is out of here. His part in our sins has got to be put back on his head. And he's not a scapegoat. He is the adversary. The word azazel doesn't mean scapegoat. That's a mistranslation. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, the wonderful millennium, and then the great white throne judgment. Again, most of the world thinks God's trying to save the whole world now. They don't get it. But God hasn't called them, you see. He has called us. So anyway, let's understand that. And some of the comments by these men are very helpful to the degree they understand. Let's get into 1 John now. And I'm going to try to cover 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, at least 1st John, today and next Sabbath. 
I hope you'll take notes or put notes in your margin. I think you'll gain a deeper understanding of what is one of my favorite books in the Bible now, one of the most wonderful books in the entire Bible to give you deep spiritual understanding and depth. Now, I've commented a number of times in sermons on these first few verses. You say, I've heard this before. Yes, because I use this. It's so wonderful. It's become one of my favorite books. But let's go over it anyway. First John, that which was from the beginning. And remember what John said in the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So let's understand. And by the way, one thing I commented to Mr. Davis on that he thought would be good to mention when I was talking to him the other day about the sermon, I mentioned to him how the world gets mixed up, brethren, often more easily they'd get mixed up anyway because God has allowed them to be blinded. But the original texts of the New Testament are set out, organized in this way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then instead of jumping from the wonderful teachings of Christ and the examples of the apostles, including Paul keeping the Day of Atonement in Acts 27.9 on his way to Rome, you see, keeping atonement, obviously, when you read it there and understand it all, instead of doing that, they stick Romans in there next, which is confusing. Paul's arguments about the law, and as Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. So God, Satan has orchestrated it so that the early Catholic Church in developing the text and others stuck Romans next. The original order, the inspired order of the New Testament ought to go Acts, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, John, Jude, the general epistles first. First to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. So right after reading Christ saying uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Think not that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to fill to the full, and so on. All the wonderful statements he made about keeping God's law. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Matthew 19, 17, and his other teachings about God's law. If you go from that right into James, where James says, if you break one point, you break them all. And he shows that if you break, you know, even though you don't commit adultery, but you kill, you're a transgressor of the law. And so do as they who will be judged by the law of liberty. That's all in James 2. And other statements about God's law, you'd go right from Christ's teaching, in a sense, to James. Then you'd get solidified, you see. And then Peter doesn't talk as much about the law directly. But then you come to John, and boy, he does. Over and over and over, the beloved disciple talks about God's law. And we need to understand that. Then they could go into Romans and the others. They might have better understanding. But Satan has pulled a clever trick by guiding it the other way. So understand. Anyway, going back now, that which was from the beginning, that which goes even back before the recreation of the earth at the time of Adam and Eve, but going even back at the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Who's that? The spokesman, the Logos. He was from the beginning, way back before the creation, because he had always been with God. He had neither father nor mother, nor beginning of days, nor end of life. You read in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, talking about Melchizedek, who obviously was Jesus Christ. This is that great being. Our hands have handled. Don't tell us, you Gnostics that he was not a real person. I spent hundreds of hours with him, John was indicating, which he certainly did, thousands of hours probably. 
helping him in and out of the fishing boats, climbing the hill together, passing things back and forth, working, talking, sleeping out under the stars at night, all the rest of it. Our hands have handled this fellow man as he was, God in the flesh, concerning the Word, the spokesman who spoke for God. The life was manifested, yes, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was declared to us or manifested to us. Manifested, God in the flesh. That which we, we apostles, you know, guys don't need to tell us about what Jesus was. We were with him three and a half years. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you this true Christ. And, of course, everything Christ stood for, that you also may have fellowship with us. We can have fellowship with the apostles, and especially those people at that time could with John directly, who was still alive. And truly, our fellowship, notice, brethren, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And as Mr. Armstrong used to explain, we don't have fellowship just by ourselves. When I came to Ambassador College, I was perhaps the most worldly student who came during those first three years because the McNairs came and they'd come from northern Arkansas and were cut off pretty much from the world and grew up on a farm and didn't see very many movies, go to any dances, anything like that. Herman Hay was, we called him Herman the book or Herman the whatever, and he was the brain, you know, but he was a scholar. He, he I think, went to one dance and not one single movie in his entire life up to the time he came to Ambassador College. And others, you know, some uh, Raymond Cole had grown up in the Sardis Church and Dick Armstrong had grown up as a preacher's son. And so I was the most worldly one. And I came from, I wasn't more evil than the others necessarily, but I wasn't any better. I was just normal, uh, red-blooded, all-American, dirty, rotten American boy <laughs> growing up in this society. And I was just normal. And I had to repent. But I could understand the outside world better, and I could understand uh, things in that way. And I would not have had a good friend. Herman Hay became one of my best friends in Ambassador College, and I still love him, pray for him, and hope he'll, you know, come with us someday. I really do. But I would not have been his friend, probably. I wouldn't have looked down on him. My mother always taught us to love everybody, as you can see. My, my sister Catherine, the way she loves everyone... And the way I normally do, too, I'm more intense, but I don't respect persons in that sense at all. Never have, because we were taught that. But I was just with the athletic guys and the other guys. I thought, well, this guy's over here studying, and it's interesting. I'll just go on and not bother with him. I would not have been a good friend of Raymond Cole or the others there, probably, the McNairs. But once I came into college, we all had a common purpose, you see. And we learned to have fellowship through Christ and through God, and God's Spirit was there. That was our fellowship. We began to share everything together. And we had fellowship with one another through God and through Christ and through Christ in us. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So we are to have joy because of that fellowship we have with whom? Primarily with the Father and with Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned recently, brethren, and in the final message of the feast, which you heard by tape, most of you, we ought to have fellowship. We're not just to know about God. We ought to actually be in the kind of prayer all day long to where we walk with God, talk with God. Every 10 or 25 minutes, maybe say a quiet prayer, asking God to guide us here and thank Him for things through the day. To be aware all day long that our hand is in God's hand and He is our Father. And we have fellowship. We actually come to know Him. 
And with our hand in God's hand, we walk right on over into the kingdom, you see, because we've been walking with him all the time. He's not way off. He's very familiar with us and to us. And these things we write to you that your joy, tremendous joy in really knowing God and knowing that you know God and having that fellowship. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. As you know, God uses the term light all the way through for righteousness and beauty and truth and so on. God is perfect light and Christ was the light that God sent into the world because Christ is God. Another thing, by the way, through this book I started to mention, notice as you read the book, often the pronoun him, you can't tell as this commentary brings out, the new commentary revised, and as another commentary I have at home was commenting, you can't tell if it refers sometimes to Christ or to the Father because in John's mind they're both the same because they were in that sense. Jesus said, John 10, verse 30, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. They're not one person, but they're one in character, one in purpose, one in the family of God, the God level of existence. I and the Father are one. They totally reflect, as Jesus told uh, Philip back in John 14, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Why do you ask about the Father? He said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If the Father were on earth, he would live exactly the same way. He'd do exactly the same type of miracles. He'd teach the same message and so on. Jesus perfectly reflected the Father. As it says in the first three or four chapters of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, Christ was this stamped impress of the Father, an exact representation of the Father in the human flesh. So we have to understand that the hymn often refers to Christ and the Father. You don't do it either way. Sometimes it talks about God's law and God is the antecedent. Other times it seems Christ is the antecedent. But on the other hand, Christ is God. It came from Christ who gave the law directly. Christ did. Whose voice thundered across the mount, the Bethlehem there below Mount Sinai. The voice of the rock of Israel who was Jesus Christ. He spoke. I am the God who led you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. He was speaking for the Father, acting for the Father, certainly, but he was God. And so they're both the same in that sense. So you have to understand that as you read this book. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, brethren, I have slipped thousands of times during my conversion. And I'm grateful that I haven't done some horrible thing. You know what I mean? I've never committed adultery. I've never killed or whatever. Never deliberately lied or stolen or anything else. Just don't do those things, period. But I've had vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed like all human beings do and made other mistakes. But... If I kept on doing even those things, God would cut me off. He would not use me. You would sense that God's Spirit is gone and the ring of truth and validity would not be in my voice and in my personality anymore. Same thing with you. God cannot use you, will not use you, unless you walk with God to a degree. If you're constantly walking the other way, if you walk in darkness, you've had it. 
You've got to quit walking in darkness. You may walk and you may stumble in the dark. You'll be on the path, you know, and God is helping you and guiding you. And here's the light going down that path. And if you slip and you fall in the mud, what do you do? You'd better really repent and get up and get back on the path again and go forward, as I've had to do hundreds of times. Say, Father, forgive me. I was pushing. I was hurting others, being too pushy, too demanding, too harsh, lusting, vain thoughts, selfish thoughts. Help me. And then you get back on the path and you go forward. That's what we've got to do. If we say we have fellowship with God, see, and walk in darkness, not that we sin on a rare occasion or regularly in our own minds a little bit here and there, but we practice sin, you see, then we walk in darkness. That's our walk. That's our way of life. We lie and do not practice the truth. The whole thing through this whole book is that you practice the truth, you practice righteousness, or you practice unrighteousness, you see. It's a matter of daily habit, as you'll see as we develop it. Your habit must be obeying God, or if your habit is disobeying God, you're not a child of God, you're cut off from God, and if you did once know God, then you're frankly going to Gehenna fire unless you bitterly repent. I don't know how long God will let you go and not regularly break His law. Probably not very long. If you're really sorry, though, brethren, remember, that means you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because he tells you just by way of reference back here in, in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26, he said, For if we sin willfully, Paul wrote, we, we Christians, if we're already converted and we sin willfully, you see, deliberately, knowingly, after we've received, not just heard about, but we have received the knowledge of the truth. It's come into us. We've been converted. If we deliberately sin, uh, there is no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now, some among you, brethren, in this room, and some of you, brethren, around the world have never been converted any more than a, you know, Mickey Mouse or a rabbit or something. Some people know about the truth, but they don't follow it. That doesn't mean they're headed for hell necessarily. Maybe they've just never been converted. They're just among us and they're around. The others of you, if you are really converted, just quietly note that. You're not their judge. I'm not their judge. Some of you say, how do you know? You can't judge them. Well, I'm not judging them. I'm not saying they're going to hell. I'm just saying I'm pretty sure they're not converted. But God is the judge. He has to figure it out. And as a minister, it's good for me to realize that in dealing with people. You know, you have to to make judgments. Well, should this people be a deacon or a leader? Well, we have to figure, is he probably converted or not? <laughs> to know that. And ministers do have to make judgment. But you're not to make harsh judgments. And you're not to judge wrongly. Yes, God says judge righteously. And that's what a minister's got to do in each one of us. All right, but if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, again, brethren, that's a walk. It doesn't mean you never slip. You're not perfect yet, but you go that direction regularly. If you walk in the light as Christ is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And we're already perfect? No, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. Again, it's present continuous. It keeps cleaning us up because we've got to grow in grace and in knowledge. We're not perfect yet. We keep growing. If we say that we have no sin, 
What? He says we. He's including himself here. We, this great man of God, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No, we all have sin. We still make mistakes occasionally, but we've got to repent of them. So Christ will continue to clean us up through his precious blood. And again, I've said, brethren, let's not be so righteous or self-righteous that we don't realize our constant need of the precious blood of the Lamb, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That blood has to pay for my sins day after day as I repent. That blood has to pay for your sins. And if you try to get up every morning before the day gets underway and you get in a wrong attitude and do wrong things and start the day off with prayer to God on your knees, which you ought to do, and ask God to forgive you every morning and perhaps again every night as part of your prayer, saying, forgive me, help me, and help me even to understand, cleanse me, Father, even from secret sins, things I don't realize I'm doing, he'll begin to bring it to your attention, you know. Well, you rod your rat, you know, <laughs> and you begin to realize, yes, I've made some bad mistakes. I've had wrong attitudes. I've got to repent of even something I didn't think of yesterday. So we've got to get that in our minds and understand the need of Christ's precious blood. That blood was shed for you and me, all of us. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. We do have sin. Cheryl and I were talking coming over today. God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. And sometimes if the whole series of things goes wrong with us, we can realize there's something really bad that just won't quit. Always a light goes on in the back of my head, and I hope it always will. It says something's wrong. God is getting my attention, and I'd better listen. I hope you're like that. Be sensitive to God's will. God rebukes and chastens every son, not he hates, but every son he loves. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. So we'll get that. God does do that. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He has to clean us up regularly. If we say that we have not sinned, as though we've never sinned at all, we're really righteous and we grew up keeping the Sabbath and we happened to grow up in some Sabbath church and we were really goody-good all the time, that's ridiculous. We have made him a liar because God says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as you know, back in Isaiah and repeated in the book of Romans. His word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children, and here is John, by the way, who apparently was very close to the age of Jesus. And if John was born about 4 B.C., then if he was still living at age 96 A.D., which he maybe was, he would have been 100 years old. 100 years old, so he calls all of them my little children. Now, some of you, and not just in this room, but around the world, have kind of looked to me as a father figure, and I'm grateful for that. I never felt that way until the last few years, because I always felt there were all these people older than me, and I'm young, and I always wanted to be older. Once I got to age 50, I quit worrying about that as much. <laughs> and once I got to be age 70, then I wished I could go back a little bit. I didn't need to be any older to prove anything. But at any rate, the leading ministers and those of us who walk with God longer can be a father to you in that way and help you. And we, you can be like little children, especially those of you who are younger and newer. But we're not to use the title father. That's wrong. God says, call no man father. You don't call anyone that as, as, as a title. That's blasphemy. God is your father. You can call your own human father father, but not as a title, of course, like God. 
God is your Father. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. And here, as the commentaries bring out, is a legal expression. In a courtroom, you need an advocate. You need a lawyer. You need counsel. Sometimes they'll call each other counsel. Counsel, what do you say? And counsel, what do you say? And the judge will say, counsel this and that, and so on. They counsel you, and they also, they're your advocate to help you get, you know, to know what to do and to get off the hook. We have an advocate with the Father. Christ lived among us. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. He absolutely felt the powerful pull of the human nature of sin. He didn't do it, but he felt it. He had to resist it, just like any normal young man. He never sinned. So he can really be our faithful, our merciful and faithful high priest, as it says in the last couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 2, because he was tempted just like we are. He understands. He was here. We we don't need to say, well, God, I know you've never experienced this. Yes, God, the God sitting at the right hand of God the Father, the other God, the Logos, the Christ, our high priest, he did feel the pull for 33 and a half years of human nature. He felt it deeply, and so he can be our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He felt it. He did not sin, though. He himself is the payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And, of course, he paid the penalty in our stead. Now, by this, we know that we know him. Now, technically, if you wanted to argue about the sentence structure, this could refer to God the Father, I mean, to Christ, you see, because it's talking about Christ and God before. But as the commentaries admit, and I'm very grateful that this commentary admits that, and then another very, very fine commentary that I have written by an extremely dedicated man, uh, also admits, he says, this hymn refers back and forth to God the Father because obviously John knew that they were both God and you have to understand that. It's talking about God and the Son. So some of these Protestants are honest enough to acknowledge that. They realize that. Of course, he's talking about God the Father right along with Christ when he talks about the commandments. The commandments originated with God the Father. There's one lawgiver, James 4:12. Christ or God is the lawgiver But in the human sense, Christ was the lawgiver because he was the one God the Father used as the logos, the rock of Israel, to speak the commandments, you see. Both of them are the lawgiver. And Moses, of course, was the uh, mediator between God and man in that sense. But God as a being, God as a level of existence is the one who gave the commandments. So now by this, we know that we know who? God. God the Father and God the Son, because God the Father gave the commandments through Jesus Christ. And they're both referred to. We could just use the term God. We know Him, God, if we keep His commandments. I thought the Protestant commentaries would get in here and try to monkey with this and say, well, there's just some new commandments of Jesus. We can get around the commandments of God. But at least the two I read this morning did not say that at all. And others I read in the past, I don't think, do that either. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is the test. 
And this, this right here uh, commentary mentions that, and I think that's significant. I might even read a tiny bit of this from the new commentary revised on this section, because it's interesting that these men who are Greek scholars, and they know the words that are used, and the antecedents, and they understand that. And it becomes a test. Here, he says, next comes a test. This is chapter 2, verses 3 to 6 by which men can know whether in spite of their failures they are in right relationship with God and walking in fellowship with Him. The test is whether they keep His commandments. That is the test. It is impossible for men who really know God to be unaffected in their daily living by this knowledge. Knowledge, incidentally, is important an important theme in this epistle. Remember, he talks about knowledge and, of course, gnosis, that's what the Gnostics talked about. Gnostic came from the, comes from the word knowing, gnosis, knowledge. Knowledge is of no good apart from God, though. You can have knowledge, but you've got to act on the truth, true knowledge, and act with God's love and guidance. So he says the verb to know, gnosko in Greek, occurs 25 times and a weed of 15 times. For John, the knowledge of God is not some mystic vision or intellectual insight it is shown if we keep His commandments. See, that's the test. Do we really do that? Obedience is not a spectacular virtue, but it is the basis of all true Christian service. I think this is remarkable from a Protestant. Obedience. And he's saying obedience to what? The commandments. I might say, brethren, I have these different glasses and I see better up close without them. So that's why I take them off. I sometimes take my glasses off, as Mr. Bryson and party know when we have lunch. I can just look around and enjoy and, and not uh, stare, but I have to read. I do most of my reading without my glasses. Anyhow, uh, but to see all of you, if you're frowning at me or ready to throw rotten tomatoes, I put my glasses back on again <laughs> and see who has a tomato out there. If any of you throw a rotten tomato, I'm, I'm going to get you. And I used to be a mile runner, too, so you watch out. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, but he who says, I know him, it does not keep his commandments. It's a matter of not knowing him, but not keeping. If you don't keep his, God's commandments, plural, that's how you know God, you see. And as I've explained before, and now I say again, you may know about God, you see, but to know God, to be acquainted with God, you've got to walk that way of life, which is the walk of His commandments. Then you experience God's character, and in doing that, you have to experience that you've got human nature. You have to experience this fellowship with God, at least to a limited degree. You have to get down and pray, Father, help me. I want to serve you. I want to obey you. Give me your spirit. You cry out to God, and through God's spirit, He helps you overcome. He helps you have His love, His joy, His peace, His faith, His patience, his long-suffering, and his self-control. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And you need all those fruits, you see, but that's God living his life in you. That's Christ in you through the Holy Spirit. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, the Apostle Paul said. Again, Galatians 2.20. But... You, to know God, to know Christ, you experience that way of life, that constant walking, that crying out to God, that sensing and feeling and knowing that help you're getting from God, then you are acquainted with God. Now, Pope John Paul, he knows about God, I think. 
He knows basically about the false God, but he may have some concept of the true God. Billy Graham knows about God, but he talks about going off to heaven and just give your life to the Lord and all this. He doesn't really know God. He's never experienced that. God has not called him yet. He's a good man, so far as I know. He just doesn't understand. He doesn't know about the holy days. He doesn't understand God's plan. He doesn't know really where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, and neither do these other so-called great religious leaders. They don't get it. God has not called them. But you and I have the magnificent opportunity to really know the whole purpose of human existence. And some of us take it for granted. And some of you young people, not only here, but around the world, you grew up in the church. You just think, oh, well, so what? We've heard this all our lives. Yet you could go out there and you'll find a whole raft of Buddhists and Shintoists and Hindus and Muslims and Catholics and various Protestant sects and cults and the Witnesses and the Mormons and everybody else, and they don't understand it. They have no understanding of the plan of God, virtually none. They just don't get it. And this little church happens to understand that. That's why Jesus talks about it being the little flock and the flock that had to flee to a place of safety during the Middle Ages and a flock that's once again going to flee at the time of the end and be taken by God himself for three and a half years to a place of safety. And if you folks take it for granted, old or young, black or white, tall or short, male or female, doesn't make any difference. You're going to have to have Christ living his life in you or you're going to be in terrible trouble you will probably go into the tribulation. And I don't see any like to see any of our young people do that. But you need to understand. You need to act on the truth. Knowledge is of no value, no value, unless it is used or applied. You see, you can say, I know this and that, but do nothing about it. What good is that? So you have to realize that. To know God, you must experience what it is like to keep His commandments. And he who says, I know him, you know, the various Protestants, Catholics, whoever they may, they, they think, oh, how good it is to know the Lord this morning. They'll say at the beginning of their service. I heard that a number of times growing up. How good it is to know the They don't know him. They know about him, but they don't really know him at all. He who says, I know him, it does not keep his commandments, is a liar. I'm not calling him a liar. God is and his word. They're a liar. And the truth what is the truth? Thy word is truth. John eight thirty two. They don't understand the truth. They know little bits and pieces, but the whole picture they do not get. But whoever keeps, not knows about, but whoever keeps his word, who really feeds on Christ. God tells us to feed on Christ. John 6, verse 57. Drink into this word. Read it regularly. Feed on it so that you really have God's Word inside of you. You begin to think that way. He says uh, uh, in verse 5, Whoever keeps his Word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, you see, as you live by God's Word. By this we know we are in him. We're in union with Christ, and Christ is in union with us. And God and the Father and God the Son live in us by the Holy Spirit. As it says back here in John, if you want to turn to this reference, you can. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, really love Christ, he will keep my word. Well, why don't those folks keep God's Sabbath? Why do they water down the command against killing? And they go off to kill the British. 
Then they go up to kill the Spanish in the Spanish-American War. Then they want to go kill the Germans in World War II. Then they want to kill the Italians and the Japanese in War One. I mean, World War One. Then they, all those they throw in, in addition, the Japanese and Germans in World War Two. And then they want to kill the Russians in the Cold War. And then they want to kill the Vietnamese in that war. And then they want to kill the Koreans. And they want to, you know, goes on and on. It never ends. The Iraqis, the Iranians, whatever. They water that down. Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife or puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he gave just three exceptions in the New Testament. And they said, oh, I just divorced, remarried for any reason. So what did they do? They break the seventh commandment. They say, we'll throw, well, it's kind of like the doctors. They say, well, your, uh, your, uh, you know, uh, gallbladder doesn't work right. Or, uh, you know, uh, your uh, whatever it is doesn't work right. We'll just cut that out and throw this as plastic bag over here. We don't need that anymore. Well, you better think you need that. God gave it to you for a reason. There might be some rare case where you'd have it cut out. We understand that in a human sense. But these other things you can't just cut out. I'll just cut out the fourth commandment. I'll just cut out the seventh commandment. I'll just reinterpret the sixth commandment about thou shalt not kill. Some of the biggest pillars in the big main Methodist and Baptist and, 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 and Church of Christ and so on in this state right here and in Kentucky and Virginia and elsewhere, you know this, are the big tobacco growers. They're the big tobacco growers and tobacco manufacturers, and they have known for decades that they were killing people and bringing on a slow, torturous, horrible death. And yet they're the pillars. They're members of the board of this big church and all this kind of stuff. They know better. Why do they do those things? Because they've never been taught the truth. The fear of God is not in them. They don't get it. They are murdering and they are deceiving and they are lying by saying they didn't understand. And they've been brought before congressional committees. If you've read the papers about the tobacco industry and and how they had to catch them and catch them and catch them and catch them in their lives over and over again. Human nature apart from God. So that's what we have right in this state right here. And all over, of course, we have that kind of thing. People involved in things they know are wrong all over the world, but they don't fear God. So whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected by him and in him. By this we know we are in him. Christ lives in us. He who says he abides in him, and this can be either God or Christ. Do you abide in Christ? You're a Christian? ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And, of course, the main emphasis here would be on Jesus Christ who did walk in the human flesh. You're to walk as he walked. And they'll comment on that. And, yes, we're ready to do that. And yet they know that Christ kept the Sabbath. It was his custom. They know he kept the holy days. And they'll admit that he kept all these things. But they have a clever argument. They're deceived. They said, well, he was under the old covenant. And so he did all this. And then at the end of his life, suddenly it all got changed. Well, where did it get changed? What verse can you refer to? No honest explanation exists. He didn't say it's all done away. Never, never, never. But they'll use these arguments because they're blinded. God has not called them yet. But you are to walk with Christ. You are to keep the holy days. You are to keep the Sabbath as Jesus did. He was the light of the world. He set us the example. Of course you're to do that if Christ is in you. Any true Christian will do that. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. 
Now, he doesn't talk here about Adam and Eve. He's obviously talking about the beginning of the truth, about Christ and his teaching and the beginning of the church under James and Peter and the apostle John and so on. What did they hear from the beginning? Well, you know what they heard from the beginning because we preach it to you so often. But if you're taking notes, okay, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what was in the beginning. This is what Christ started right off with, setting the very foundation of Christianity. John, I mean, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fill to the full, which is what fulfill means. He set us an example of doing it. He said in verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. What commandments? You read right on. He's obviously talking about the ten. And teaches men so, which they do, all through Protestantism and Catholicism, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Other scriptures tell you they won't even be there unless they repent. But whoever does and teaches them, even the least of the commandments, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You want to pray? You want to study? You want to have Christ living in you and live this way of life and teach it to others by talking to them, by praying for them, by your example, by your prayers and service in the church of God and tithes and offerings and giving and helping to get the message out in every way you can so that people can learn the truth, you see, and understand and not be in the great tribulation. Whoever does and teaches them, even the least of the commandments. He said then, you're not only not to kill, you're not to hate. And he said in verse 27, you've heard it was said, you're not to commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already. He magnifies the commandment. Does that do away with the commandment? Of course not. It makes it even harder to keep. You're not only not to do the act, you're not even to put that mental picture in your mind. You're not even to lust in that way. He magnified the law as God said he would in Isaiah 42, verse 21. And certainly that's what he did all the way through his teaching. He told the young man, Matthew 19, 17, who came and said, Lord, what can I do to be saved? He said, keep the commandments. If you would enter into life, how do you get eternal life? Keep the commandments. And then he began to name some of the Ten Commandments. But then who people who want to argue, well, he didn't mention the Sabbath. That's true. The first four he didn't mention. So therefore, you can have another God before the true God. You can have idols. You can uh, take God's name in vain. And you can dishonor your father and mother, right? Because he didn't mention the first four. You see how ridiculous that argument is? Why didn't he mention the first four? Because the Jews were very, very strict on the first four, but they were very loose on the last six. That's why. And because God himself, and he did, he wrote the Bible a little here, a little there, so they might go forward and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Isaiah chapter 28. The word of the God, of God was unto them. You know, scripture upon scripture and scripture on scripture, however it's worded there, and that they might go forward and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. God did not intend the Bible to be great big Roman numeral 1, 2, 3, A, B, C, so men could not possibly misunderstand. He allowed human beings to be deceived for 6,000 years. That was part of his plan, you know. So that's why he wrote the Bible that way. But still, if you read the Bible honestly, you say, what was Christ like 
what did the, what he teach was very simple. That part's very simple. If you're willing to just say, well, just let, it is kind of one, two, three, A, B, C. Cause he did keep all the commandments. He said, keep them over and over. He did keep the Sabbath. He did keep the holy days. They're never done away. It's simple from that point of view. So, I write no new commandment, but an old commandment from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. What was that word? We just read about it. Keep the commandments. Have Christ live in you. Live by every word of God. What word of God? Luke 4, verse 4. Matthew 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. What was the word of God Jesus talked about? The only written word of God was the Old Testament. We know that the rest of the Bible shows us we're to live by the Old Testament as it's magnified by the New. But he certainly did not do away with the Old Testament. That's the only word they had when he said that. So he said again, a new commandment I write to you. Oh, now it's now he's going to do away with the law. Here's his chance. A new commandment. Which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is already passing and the true light is already shining. What's the new commandment? He who says he is in the light. If you say you're in the light and you're a Christian and hates his brother is in sin even until now, or in darkness until now. Yes, you're to love your brother. And, of course, Christ says, remember back in John, he said the same thing, in effect, when he was magnifying God's law back at the end of his life in uh, in First uh, John and telling us what to do. If you want to turn there, he says in First John, uh, I mean, in John, Gospel of John, chapter 13, he says, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Was that new? No, that was said back in uh, Leviticus 19:18, to love your neighbors yourself. But what makes it new? The last part of the verse, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what made it new. He magnified it by his own life to show us how to do that. All right? Oh, so we are to understand all of this and really grasp how wonderful it is he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. If you really love your brother, forgive your brother, kind to your brother, have outflowing concern to all human beings, because they're all made in the image of God, and special love and warmth and fellowship with your brethren in the church, where you sense God's Spirit is there among you. But he who hates his brother, verse 11 is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He doesn't get it. He is blind. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. The little ones just experience forgiveness, and that's wonderful. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. These are the older man, men. They knew, older men and women, obviously. They knew. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. The young men were assailed by their lusts and vanities, as a young man often is. So he, he, they had to fight the wicked one. He talks about the devil through this book several times. The wicked one, he's there. He will try to get you by taking advantage of your lusts, if he possibly can. I write to you, little children, he repeats, because you've known the Father. He becomes your real Father. God does. I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. Yes, they knew that Christ was from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong. That appealed to the young men. It helped them. Yes, they're physically strong, and they'd better be spiritually strong. You're strong. 
and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. There again, the devil is there to get you if he can. Do not love the world. And brethren, of all ages of human history, this perhaps is the most deceptive cosmos, world, society that's ever existed. They had a lot of problems just before the flood and God wiped out the world. But Jesus said just before his coming, the world would be just like the days of Noah. And frankly, it's going to be worse in some ways because in the days of Noah, they had to go into a house of ill repute or go into some other evil thing directly. Here, you just push a button. Your kid, even walking through, can flip a button and bang! There's violence after violence after murder after murder, rape, robbery, rotten stuff right in front of his eyes. Adultery, fornication, sex triangles, homosexuality being subtly and not so subtly portrayed. You know that. Over and over on the little tube, the boob tube, which it certainly is. The world can get at you so easily today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, you like the society, you want to be part of it, you want to see the latest movies, you want to, you know, go to all the nightclubs and you want to do this and that, the love of the Father is not in him. It can't be. Your mind's too much on that. Again, I'm not saying never see a movie, never watch TV, but boy, you'd better cut way back and be very, very selective. For all those in the world, the society, cosmos, this world under Satan, Satan is the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Satan is the god of this world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, not that, not that loving your maid or having a desire for food or wine in a right way, but the wrong use of anything. Lust. The lust of the eyes. Mentally undressing people. Mentally wanting to kill people as you see them murdered and blown up and all this stuff on TV and these computer games. Getting that in your mind over and over. And the pride of life, vanity. I want to be rich. I want to be powerful. I'm the big shot. Me, me, me. I've got to have this and got to have that. It's not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So we really want to understand that. Little children, it is the last hour. This is interesting. The last hour, getting right close to the end of the age 2,000 years ago, from God's point of view, of billions of years, it's certainly right down near the end. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists, several, many, dozens, hundreds in a certain sense, of false ministers and false religious leaders presenting a false Christ, a false God, a false plan of salvation, you know, Talking about, you know, Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all that stuff. The whole concept of God that is absolutely, totally opposite everything taught in the Bible. Many antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, these people that left at that time. They were not really of John and the true disciples. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued, but they went out that they might be manifest that none of them is with us or with us. But you have an anointing. An anointing, of course, refers to the oil being poured over your head. It can refer, as it does here, to the Holy Spirit. is used as oil. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Yes, we have understanding. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and the no lie is of the truth. 
Don't believe lies. Understand they are lies. You say, well, these are nice people. Or some of you have old Uncle Ben and, and Aunt Mary, and they were nice people. Yes, they're very nice people among the Buddhists, among the Hindus, among you name it. I know that some of our leading ministers in Worldwide, whom I love, Dr. Hay and John Halford and others, who had worked with the Thai Buddhists over there in the projects of Mr. Armstrong, got to know the Queen of Thailand. They said that those people were some of the most kind and gracious and gentle and loving people they'd ever been with in their entire life. But they would bow down before the idol of Buddha. They had no concept of God. And if you told them about God, of course, they'd reject it. But the interesting thing also, which I've learned as I read and asked Jonathan McNair, Carl McNair's older son, one time he was in charge of our project in Thailand, not ours, but I mean worldwide, for a few years. If they get mad at each other, normally they're really wonderful. (laughs) But if they get mad at each other, they literally whip out the long knives and they will cut each other. Just literally blood is everywhere. They'll slice each other to bits. These wonderful, gentle, they don't have God's spirit. You see, there's a dichotomy there. When everything is okay, they can be very kind. They don't have self-control. They don't have understanding. So you have to grasp that fact. You can understand through God's Spirit. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus? You see, the human being, some of them were saying he wasn't really a human being. He was a disembodied spirit. Jesus was a human being. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son doesn't have the Father. But he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you. You're to let that knowledge abide in you. Notice this, brethren. Verse 24 is a key verse. Which you heard when? By Paul's later teaching or a misinterpretation of it? No. Certainly it was a misinterpretation because Paul didn't teach all that bad stuff. You know what I mean? But which they think they heard from Paul or Simon Magus or whatever guy they wanted to get it from. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. The beginning was what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount and what James and Peter and John taught, the original apostles. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. You'll walk with God if they live in you. And this is the promise he's promised us, eternal life. These things I've written you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing, you see, the Holy Spirit, which you have received from him, abides in you. And you do not need anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you uh, concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. You're to abide, you see, in Christ. And now, little children, abide in him. The antecedent here is primarily Christ, of course, as you see by the context Little children, I say to you, as John said to them, abide in him. Abide in Christ. Christ must live in you, as Paul said. Abide in Christ, that when he appears, God will appear in the person of his Son. That when he appears, we may have confidence. See, we've been walking with God. And as I said, then we'll walk right on over into eternal life into a different dimension of existence because we will have been fellowshipping with, walking with, 
knowing, you see, and, and, and being with this, this, these beings, God the Father and Christ as our father and elder brother, all the time in a close, real relationship, so we can go right on over. We've walked that way of life, and they've been living in us. So abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, if Christ is righteous, you know that everyone who practices, I'm reading the New King James, and that's the way it's worded, everyone who practices, not just is righteous once in a while, but as a way of life, present continuous, present continuous, a way of life, practices righteousness, is begotten of him. And as I've explained so many times, and we've checked it up and rechecked it and read the commentaries, one word, genau, it can be translated either born or begotten, and most of the time it should be translated begotten very clearly by the context, you see. So if you have Christ living in you and who practices righteousness, what is righteousness? Put in your margin if you want to, or notes. Psalm 119, verse 172. All thy commandments are righteousness. That's God's definition of righteousness. Now, there are dozens of other places where it says that, but it says it more clearly just in that one verse, you know, just like two and two equals four. That's what they are, God's commandments. So he who practices righteousness is begotten of God. He has God's Spirit in him or he could not practice righteousness. And then he goes on here, and I'll read a little more now. We have about 14 more minutes I'd like to get halfway through about so we can finish next time. You forgive me, but we're here on the Sabbath. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Tremendous love that we should be called children of God. We know the rest of the Bible clearly indicates we're begotten children. His very nature is that as we're not yet born, we're child children, though. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we're the children of God that has not yet been revealed what we shall be. You see, we're not yet born, we're just begotten. But we know that when he is revealed, when Christ is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're really going to be like him at that time when he comes, when we're born of God, We'll become full members of the God family. We'll become full brothers of Jesus Christ, and then we will be like him. And, of course, as you know, in the book of Revelation, why uh, it says uh, in verse uh, uh, 16 here, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And in verse 15 it says, his voice was the sound of many waters, Powerful, rolling thunder coming across the Texas plain. That's the voice of Christ. His face shining like the sun in full strength, like a blast furnace. You can't look at God and live. Other scriptures show us if he appeared in full strength. So we're going to look like that when we're born of God. We can't fully grasp it now, but we can imagine to a degree with God's spirit. We shall be like him, for we shall see him not in some lesser way, we'll see the full glory and majesty because we will be spirit. We will be full sons of God, not just led by God's spirit, but we will be composed of the Holy Spirit as God is, full sons. And everyone who has this hope of that magnificent future of being full sons of God 
everyone uh, has this hope, purifies himself. You're willing to be good? You want to be just little good boys and girls and God's way off somewhere and there's no reason to be good? No, because you were born for a purpose and the whole purpose of your drawing breath is ultimately to become a full son of God at, at the God level of existence, a whole different dimension of existence. That's why you purify yourself. That's why you say, no, I'm not going to fornicate, you young people. No, I'm not going to commit adultery. Even though, well, these women look at each other, look at you and other stuff, all this stuff goes on. Can it be tempting? Yes. Even though you're tempted to hit someone once in a while, you young men, all the rest of it. You say, no, I will not do that. God has called me for a purpose. And I will not turn my back on God. You purify yourself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. See, lawlessness, breaking. is not talking about the traffic law, obviously. All they had was mules and horse carts then. And sin is lawlessness, or as the King James words it, sin is. And that's such an important key. Sin is the transgression of God's law. That's what sin is. And when you understand that all the way through the New Testament, it becomes very clear you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him, you abide in Christ, you're a Christian, does not sin. And when you understand it, it means you don't practice sin. And he mentions it every now and then, and the commentaries acknowledge this whole section is talking about present continuous. Whoever sins, say plural, continuing, has neither seen him nor known him. Well, I sin, you sin, that doesn't mean we never know God. Everyone has sinned except Christ, but we know God because we don't practice that way of life. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, and here it is correctly translated in the New King James, the word practices is in here, because that's what's intended through this passage. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, as a way of life. You keep all ten of the commandments. As a way of life, you keep the holy days. As a way of life, you even keep the spirit of the law. You don't lust. You don't have hate. You forgive one another. You walk with God as a way of life. He who practices, or he who sins, or practices sin, verse 8, is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. doesn't mean that you're of the devil if you slip once in a while. But obviously, I think I'll drink this tea. I haven't even had some yet. I'll try to drink it more next time to show my free... I just got going and want to squeeze all again I can. <laughs> you don't mind if I preach till midnight, do you? I mean, Paul preached till midnight. <laughs> anyway, he who sins, see, as a way of life, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. See, he converted people, and ultimately through that, the devil's going to be ultimately defeated. Whoever has been, notice verse 9 very carefully, whoever has been begotten, as it ought to be, whoever, whatever human being, you and me, has been begotten of God, does not sin. And once again, it's present continuous. Doesn't mean you never slip, but you do not practice sin if you're begotten of God, you see. Why? For his seed, 
And Mr. Armstrong explained decades ago, the Greek word here is sperma, S-P-E-R-M-A, the very seed, using a figure of speech, certainly, because God is spiritual, but that very seed from God comes in you and begets you like the human sperm comes into the womb of a mother and begets the child. It's exactly the same thing, except God's very nature comes in you. God's nature remains in him. God's seed, God's very character is implanted in him, and he cannot sin because he's been begotten of God. And, of course, the word means he cannot practice sin as a way of life. He can slip, but he cannot practice sin because that divine seed is in him. And if he continues to practice sin, then he's cut off. God's seed will not abide. There remains no more sacrifice, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Hebrews 10:26. He's no longer God's child. He's committed the unpardonable sin. Once he's had God's seed and regularly sins, he cannot practice sin because he's been begotten of God and God's very nature is there. God's nature will convict him. As I said, if you're going along and you start sinning, if you're really converted, a light will go on in the back of your brain and you will feel convicted and you'll sense. Not that you've had to commit adultery or some horrible thing or murder. But you've been selfish, or you've lied, or you've greatly exaggerated as a form of lying, or you've done this or that, a whole bunch of stuff, and all of a sudden things start going wrong. I've had that happen. And then I realize God is speaking to me. God is wanting to teach me a lesson. God does not rebuke every son he hates. He rebukes every son he loves. So you cannot continue to practice sin. God will give you a warning. He'll convict you. If you're not converted, you may not even be convicted, though. So, verse 10, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So he's not talking about being born again already in God's family, God's kingdom, and being spirit. In this world is what he's talking about. This is how you know if people are converted or not in this life. Whoever does not practice, and here it is worded correctly, in the New King James, whoever does not practice righteousness, say keeping God's law, is not uh, of God. And whoever does not love his brother, nor is he who does not love his brother. You've got to love your brother, and you've got to practice righteousness, otherwise you're not converted, and that is a sign to God, and really to others too, to a degree, if they understand. For this is the message you've heard from him, from the beginning, that we should love one another. So important. How can you love God or say that you love God whom you have not seen and yet hate your brother whom you have seen? You've got to love your brother, lay down your life for your brother, be involved in helping your brothers, two Philadelphians, too, in the work of God, giving, helping, sharing. Love this world in the right way as God did, not love the society, but want to get the message out and help others. This is the message of, God, of the Apostle John. Brethren, we'll stop right here after verse 11, and we'll continue on uh, next Sabbath and finish the whole book of 1 John, and possibly, if I'm really fast, 2nd and 3rd John as well. So we'll knock off at this point. Please meditate on this. I hope you have some notes in your margin. This is wonderful, deep, spiritual meat beyond what we have fully understood in years past, and uh, I hope we can really... 
meditate on this uh, magnificent book because that's, that is what it is. The book written by Jesus' favorite apostle and the one who had more love, probably, and wrote about love more than anyone else.